Well, look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, first of all, and a few verses that follow, because I think it's important for us to recognize that in the Old Testament, we have a lot of places where we can say, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. In fact, remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, and in them, they reveal him. You know, and and you can go through all of the Old Testament scriptures, including Leviticus and some of the other very, very unusual passages of the Old Testament that many people wouldn't really recognize they really do refer to Christ. And it's really wonderful when you come across passages of scripture that say, hey, you know what, that sounds like it could be a reference to Jesus. And you see that throughout the Psalms and plenty of other places in the prophets and in the books of Moses. And also in this book of Joshua. And the reference in Joshua that is most outstanding, in my opinion, is that which we are going to be looking at tonight. In chapter 20 of the book of Joshua, we are going to find a reference to or a type of Jesus Christ in those passages of Scripture that we'll look at. So that's why I've asked you to turn to the book of Hebrews first so we can see what it is that I'm referring to that is a type of Jesus Christ. And we find it beginning with verse 18 in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is talking about God's purpose in Christ, his infallibility, a better estimate in his mind of the things that have been done for us because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And in chapter 6, verse 18, he begins to say these things. He says that by two immutable things, in which is it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered, that's Jesus, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you'll remember, Melchizedek was an Old Testament character mentioned in the book of Genesis at the time of Abraham, when Abraham had conquered the five kings that uh, had taken away many of his family members, and he went after those five kings and defeated them. And on his way back, he came into contact with this man named Melchizedek. He was a priest of the Lord. He was the king of a city in that day known as Salem, which now is known as Jerusalem. And that man was mentioned only once in Scripture, and it's he to whom Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils after having conquered those five kings. He gave a tithe as an offering to this man. So this man was a greater man in Abraham's eyes, and of course in God's eyes, than Abraham seems to have been. And it's important for us to realize, and that's what we're also going to be seeing as we continue studying through the Word of God that it's always the lesser that blesses the greater. And so in that context, it is determined 
that Abraham was the lesser and Melchizedek was the greater. It says that Melchizedek was, but had no record of a father or mother. Um, many people believe that he is a very specific type of Jesus Christ. And not only is it the fact that there's no record of a father and mother, but that the way that in the original language it's written, he had no father or mother. And that certainly is the case with regard to the eternal second person of the Trinity, except the fact that he calls God the Father, his father, and yes, that's true, but uh, he was not born into a family until his incarnation when Mary became pregnant, and God was indeed his father. But from the spiritual sense, he had no record of being the son of, of any man. Now, we find a reference here to Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. There's only one other place in the Word of God where Melchizedek is mentioned. And that is in Hebrews, in rather Psalms, chapter 110, where it says there that the Son that is the Son of God, the one that is spoken of in that passage, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so that's important too. Not after the order of Levi or Aaron, because that Aaronic priesthood was a temporary priesthood. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. And that's why he calls him here the, the hope that we have before us is the anchor of our soul, the forerunner uh, of all the glory and honor that belongs to him as our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But I want you to note, in, and I know that was a roundabout way of getting to where I wanted to get to in this passage, but take a look more closely. Because of who we're talking about, take a look at the latter part of verse 18 once again, where it says, we might have, or would do have, a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. He is the one who provides a refuge for us. There is a song many, many years ago written by a man named George Keith. And the chorus of that song has these words, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath laid, or said rather, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. That's a great message in that song. Jesus is the one that provides our refuge. And that's the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today. The people of God need to have a refuge. And by the way, that uh, chorus was one of the uh, songs that were used by J. Vernon McGee in his daily radio ministry. They introduced his ministry, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but if you have ever listened to J. Vernon McGee, you would be familiar with those words of the song that I quoted from George Keith that we uh, have just now spoken of. Now, Let's turn to Joshua, chapter 
20. Remember that the people of Israel have been in the land. They've conquered all of the land of the Canaanites that were to be conquered in order for them to be able to take their inheritance. And their inheritance had just been distributed by lot by the priests in Joshua and the high priests uh, in that wonderful place known as Shiloh. Shiloh was where they would have kept the Ark of the Covenant had David later on not moved it to Jerusalem. But it was there in Shiloh. It was a central location. Uh, it was easy to get to. It was on a high elevation. People knew that because it was such a large area, they could come to Shiloh and offer their sacrifices unto the Lord as was required by Moses. But it's at Shiloh that the distribution of all the land had been dealt with for every one of the twelve tribes, including the two and a half tribes that settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River. But there was still just a little bit more work that needed to be done. Remember, through the distribution of the land and the, and the drawing of lots for each tribe, almost every time a lot was cast, the people who were descendants of Levi were mentioned. The Levites did not inherit a territory. They did not inherit a plot of land that was chosen by Lot, as did the other tribes. They had God as their inheritance. They had the ministry that God had provided for them as their inheritance. They had the blessings of being able to be the recipients uh, from all of the offerings that were made so that they could feed their families as an inheritance in the land. But they had no land given to them as a territory. So that was something that needed to be dealt with. And as we approach the end of the book of Joshua, we find in chapter 20 how it is that God intended for the descendants of Levi to be able to live in the land even though they didn't actually possess a territory within the borders of the nations, or, or, or rather the territory of the Canaanites. But Moses had instructed Joshua, and it's found all the way back in Numbers chapter 35, that the Levites were to be given special privileges, and among those special privileges were the distribution of cities within the territories of each of the other tribes. So they didn't have a territory of their own, but they had cities designated for them throughout the entire nation in each one of the twelve tribes. And that's what chapter 20 and uh, most of chapter 21 are going to be talking about, the distribution of those cities. There are in total 48 Levitical cities spread throughout the territories of Israel. It was important because the Levites were the ones who were to give the law to the people. And they needed to be close by to as many of the people as they possibly could. And so they were very evenly distributed among all the twelve tribes in those cities that were selected by the Lord. And it gave them an opportunity to be within ten or twelve miles at the most from any resident in any one of the other tribes to go to the city of Levites and they could be able to benefit from the teaching of the word 
by the Levitical priesthood. Very important. God established that so that his word could stay alive in the nation. It worked pretty well for a while. However, good things sometimes come to an end, and that was one of them. But, not only were they given those total of 48 cities, but among those 48 cities, they would be, according to Moses, in again, chap, in chapter 35 of the book of Numbers, six cities of refuge. And that's what the focus is of chapter 20 in this book of Joshua. The cities of refuge. Again, there are six of them. Three on the western side of the Jordan River, three on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they were equally separated and they were very, very important cities. So we'll look, look here at the Word of God together in chapter 20 to find out what that importance was. But keep in mind of what we saw in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the one who gives us our refuge. In fact, you could almost say that he is our refuge. But let's look at verse 1 of chapter 20, where it says, The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, that sounds somewhat strange, perhaps. It certainly is, would, would be in our culture where we have different laws and regulations regarding murder and manslaughter. But in that day, of course, there was no police force. They had different ways of handling things. And in the cultures of that day, in Joshua's time and Moses' time and Abraham's time, if somebody had murdered somebody else, then that person who was murdered his family would have the legal right to take vengeance on the murderer by taking the murderer's life. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's not only in the Hebrew law, it's in Babylonian law and other laws of other cultures in those periods of time. It was a very, very strong detriment to prevent murder. Now remember, one of the Ten Commandments, you all know as Thou shalt not kill. Well, that's our English translation, but it's more specific in the Hebrew language. Thou shalt not deliberately take another person's life. That's what murder is. Now, killing somebody by accident is not a sin in God's eyes. And that's why the cities of refuge are here established. We have the one who accidentally, unintentionally, kills somebody. It's manslaughter. And he has now an opportunity to escape the revenger of that killing, the, the relative of the one who died, by escaping to a city of refuge. So he would then, or she, would run as quickly as is able to do so to the nearest city of refuge. So if he lived in the territory of Judah, he had a city of refuge. It was uh, the city of um, Hebron. And that was a Levitical city, but it was also a special Levitical city. It was a city of refuge. And so that person would run to the gates of the city and make the proclamation that 
He is escaping the avenger of blood because he accidentally killed a man or a woman and is seeking asylum in the city. Now, the Levitical priests in that city would take him in, hear his case, and they would protect him, and they would allow him to stay in the city so that the avenger could not enter into the city to commit that vengeance killing. That's why it was given for that one purpose, that the one who accidentally, unintentionally killed another would be protected from the one who was the avenger, avenger of the, the dead. So it says, and when he flees, in verse 4, to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So in a sense, he is in a prison confinement, but he's free to go about anywhere in the city to live out his days until either the final judgment of and the decision of those who hear his case is meted out or the high priest during that period of time that he was involved in that unintentional murder passes away. And in either of those two cases, he is free then to go back to his own home. But he has to remain in that city. He's left his family. He's left his perhaps children and his wife, his relatives, his land. He can't go back there until those requirements are indeed met. So there's a cost involved to that individual. You know, <clears throat> when we have judgment in our judicial system of manslaughter, uh, it's, it's usually not that the individual gets completely set free. There's a price to pay. It's unfortunate that he had done so, but there's a cost involved usually meted out by a faithful judge to our judicial system in a way that is fair. They didn't have that system again completely set up in the Old Testament, but much of our judicial system is indeed based upon the system that was developed under the Mosaic Law. But in this case, this individual was not to be killed. He was to be protected. And that's what the refuge city was all about. Protection from death. And that is why when we think of Jesus as our refuge, our source of refuge, he as our high priest protects us from death that we were certainly guilty for. You know, the word of God simply declares that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're deserving of death in God's eyes. But he allows for us to go to that refuge, which is Christ, so that we, having fled to him, can be freed from that which was intended to be meted out because of our sin. 
It's not a perfect illustration, a perfect picture, but it serves very well to remind us of the fact that we have a high priest and we have a refuge in him. And of course, our high priest will never die. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He had no father or mother in the sense of a human lineage, but he is our high priest and has always been and always will be. And that is something that we can take great confidence in and pleasure in knowing that we are safe in him. He is our refuge. What more can you say than that which he has already said? We have a refuge in Jesus Christ and we have fled to him. And because we have, we have the sure foundation, the assurance that we will not be judged for that sin that we committed. It's interesting in the book of Proverbs, uh, I believe it's in Proverbs 6. The writer of Proverbs says, A man who steals must repay for that which he has done. And that is true. He is able to receive forgiveness. People will feel sorry for him if he steals when he's so down and out he has nothing in life to be able to support himself or his family and he might apt to be a person who would try to find some way of helping his family by stealing from another. He gets caught. Well, you have compassion on that one but he still has to pay the price for that which he has done. And that's what sin is all about. A price still must be paid for what has been done. And we all know that price was paid by Jesus Christ in the shedding of his own blood. The price was a very costly thing for Jesus to have borne on our behalf. But he did so. And we're so grateful for that. So that type of Refuge that is provided for us here, again, is a picture of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Well, verse 7 continues and says, So the appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. Those three on the eastern side, or western side of the Jordan. And on the other side, the eastern side, verse 8 says, of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness of the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. And these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. So once he stood before the congregation and they've judged his case, he must remain until then in the city or until, as it said in verse 6, the high priest were to die and then he could be set free. We're set free. We're free to do and be servants of the Most High God. It's not that we're set free to sin more. It's so that we can be in Christ Jesus free to worship our God 
And that's what this man was able to do, to worship his God in that city of refuge. It is really, truly a beautiful picture of the salvation that God offers to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, chapter 21 continues to talk about those other 42 cities. And they're all named in this passage in chapter 21. And I hope you don't think I'm going to try to read all of the names, but I am going to read portions of chapter 21 together with you so we can get a certain idea of where those cities are located and why they were distributed as they were. And again, these things were done at Shiloh, not at Gilgal, where they had crossed over the Jordan, where they began in their encampment at the beginning of the conquering of the land, but they've moved from Gilgal now to Shiloh. They've set up the tabernacle, and it is there that they are making these decisions about how to distribute the land to all the tribes and the cities, the 48 total number of cities, to the Levitical priests and their families. So it says in Verse 1 of chapter 21, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in, with their common lands for our livestock. That again was recorded in Numbers chapter 35. Verse 3 says, So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the command of the Lord these cities and their common lands. Now the lot came out for the family of the Kohathites. Now the Kohathites were one of the sons of Levi. And the Kohathites are split into two groups here. It says, first of all, in chapter 4, of uh, chapter 21, verse 4, Now the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites and the children of Aaron, who were descendants of the uh, Kohath, or Korah, what, what is his name? He was a, they were Kohathites. I'm sorry, I'm confused. They were all Kohathites who were descendants of Aaron, but not all descendants of Aaron, not all descendants of the, <laughs> the man who was a son of Levi, the father of Aaron was a descendant of the Kohathites, and so were many others. So, it, again, it's split up into two groups. The children of Aaron, the priest, who were Kohathites, they were of the Levites. They had 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. But the rest of the children of Kohath, there, that's his name, had 10 cities by lot, from the families of the tribe of Ephraim, from Dan, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh on the western side of the Jordan. So, the entire family of the Kohathites, descendants of uh, Kohath, were split up into two groups. One group got 13 cities, the other group got 10 cities, and they occupied those cities according to the distribution that was outlined here in these verses that we just read. Verse 6 says, And the children of Gershon, another son of Levi, had thirteen cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, on the other side of Jordan. Verse 7 says, The children of Merari the third son of Levi, according to their families, had twelve cities from the tribe of Reuben, 
from the tribe of Gad, and from the tribe of Zebulun. And the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. So again, Moses had given very clear instructions. They're just following through with what Moses had said to them as he was instructed by the Lord for the distribution of cities into the possession of those descendants of Levi. So it's a really remarkable thing that they are doing here, and they were all willing to do so. It tells us again that they gave those cities with their common lands to the Levites. Now, if you turn all the way down to verse 43 of chapter 21, that's because we're skipping all those names that will do that, and um, you can read them if you want. They're good information, but they really don't have a whole lot of meaning for us. In fact, most of those cities don't exist anymore. We don't know where they were specifically in most cases, but they were cities at the time that had once been occupied by the Canaanites, and in the distribution of the land again to all of the tribes, those 48 cities were given to the Levites for their own use. Six of them, out of the 48, were to be the cities of refuge. So that's the way that God chose to take care of that one tribe of the Levites. Very, very wonderful provision for the priesthood and for all the Levitical servants of the Lord in the service that was ordained for them by the law of Moses. So verse 43 closes the chapter with these words. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Now there's a little bit of a side note that we need to remember. They didn't take full possession. They had the inheritance, a full inheritance of what God had promised, but they did not take full possession, only a partial possession. There were still some Canaanites in the land. They didn't do everything that God had intended. They started out well. In fact, you may remember that we had talked about before that God had told them that he would give them the land. He would go before them. He would win the battles for them. And he would do it little by little. He didn't want them to go into the entirety of the land all at once because they wouldn't have been able to take control of the land being so sparsely spread out. So this was God's intent. This is the way he intended for it to be. But they didn't follow through. They didn't finish the job. And that is something that we all need to remember. It's practical for us to take a look at this idea of the difference between inheritance and possession because that is what God has done for us. He's given us a great inheritance and we have possessions that have been made available to us. Great and wonderful, blessed and precious promises that God has given to us, and we need to take possession of them. We don't always. They didn't. And in the same way, we lose out if we don't take possession of what God has promised. But it says in verse 44, the Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There was no fight left in the Canaanite people. They were a 
a defeated people. All of them. They knew it. They were never going to form armies to the extent that they once had done when Joshua first came into the land. Oh, they will have plenty of small or smaller wars against the people of Israel. Certain groups will get together and come against Israel throughout their entire history, throughout the book of Judges. We see that, and even beyond, into second, first and second Samuel. And the, the land really wasn't actually at peace until the time of Solomon. But they were never able, again, to amass a great army as they had once been able to do when they were first, when Israel was first in the land. And so that's what verse 44 is all about. It's talking about the fact that the, the enemies were subdued. And verse 45 ends the chapter by saying, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. I love that passage. All came to pass. Everything that God had said, He did. And my friends, God has made many, many promises that have not yet come to pass. But because we see that in the text that we have before us, we have a confidence in the fact that God will indeed do the same in this present hour. That everything He has promised is indeed going to come to pass, as He has said. Because it is He who said it. A word never fails that comes from God's lips. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Verse 45, chapter 21. It's a great ending to that important chapter. Now, the only thing that's left, as far as the distribution of land and the way that the people of God are to settle the land is found in chapter 22. And we'll read a portion of chapter 22 tonight as we continue, and it's basically having to do with the fact that the men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh that had come across the Jordan to go to war with the remainder of the tribes of Israel had faithfully served Joshua and their God for about seven years during those battles in the land of Canaan. Now it's time for them to go back home to their families, to their children, to their wives, to their flocks and all of the things that they had longed to do all of those seven years. But they remained faithful to Joshua and God throughout that period of time. They had promised Moses back when Moses was alive, when they wanted to inhabit that land, that they would do exactly as they had done. They were faithful to their word. And now, chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, is a record of Joshua dismissing them. Kind of like an honorable discharge in our army today. But he says in verse 1 of chapter 22, Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, and as he promised them, now, therefore, return and go to your tents 
and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. You are dismissed. What a joyful time of celebration that must have been for those men. What a wonderful experience it must have been for them to hear the words of their commander, well done, good and faithful servants. And I'm convinced that that will be the most precious statement ever, ever for me to hear when I hear it from Jesus' own lips as he speaks those words to me. And I pray all of us will be expecting the same thing from our Lord's lips. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Joshua was telling these men who had been faithfully by his side all of those many years in those various battles that they fought. And he's now rewarding them with their inheritance. Great passage. Verse 5 says, But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. This is important. Take careful heed. And by the way, that probably could be better translated, be very careful to do this. Joshua isn't just suggesting something. He's saying this is of most high level of importance to him and to them and to God. Take careful heed to do the commandments of the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Well, what are those commandments? He gives them specifically at the remainder of the verse. In chapter 22, verse 5, we read, The commandments of the Lord are these, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. They were obligated to do these things under the law. They would be pleased to do those things for the king. They would be pleased to do those things for the God who had brought them through so many wonderful experiences in the wilderness and in Canaan. Now that's all that he expects of them. Again, to love the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Isn't that something like what Jesus said? What is the greatest commandment? And the man who responded says, oh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said, yes, this is true. That is what you should do. That's an answer that was answered well. But he also said, love one another as I have loved you. He also said, you and I are simply to obey that one command. There's nothing more. There's nothing else needed but that one simple command that God gives to us. Are we good at it? I wish I were better. I pray that we all are going to be better as we continue to serve him. If we aren't doing it well now, we should be. And if we're not doing it well and, and haven't felt a need to, we need to get on our knees and ask God to forgive us. And we know that he will. And he knows, we know also that he will enable us by the Spirit of God to do that which he commands us to do. Because he will not command us anything that cannot be accomplished. This is what Joshua is telling those men who are about to go back into their territory and join together with their families that they had not seen for seven years. Don't forget your God. 
Obey his commands and you will be well. Well, verse 6 continues and says, So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now the half-tribe, or to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half of of it, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. Now, that doesn't seem fair to some, I think, because those who have borne the burden of that labor, that seven years of battle, probably were thinking, all that spoil is what I have, and I'm keeping it for myself, because I worked hard for it. What Joshua is saying is, don't go down that path of selfishness. When you get into the land, you are to distribute it freely among all the people so that everyone will benefit from the spoils of your victory. Now, it's an important idea, concept, and it's something that needed to be done by the people. And if you look at the way that David, much, much later on, interacted with the people of God the nation of Israel, before he became king. We find that principle in play. Back in 1 Samuel, chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, you turn there with me, chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, beginning with verse 21. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 21 says, Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. What's taking place here is the Amalekites had completely wiped out the city that they were living in. David and his men and his wives and children and all the families of those men that were with him. While they were with the Philistine army, headed for battle against the nation of Israel, the Amalekites came and wiped out that city and burned everything. Well, David was not able to go to battle by the grace of God against his own people because the Philistine lords did not want him and his men with them in that battle. So David was forced to turn back to the place that he and his family had been staying. When he got there, they found it burned with fire. And so David and his men were so angry, they began to pursue after the Amalekites, after having been given a lead by a servant as to where they were. It was a long, long journey. But some of them were so tired from the other days of travel that they could not find the strength to pursue with David those Amalekites. So David insisted to those men, 200 of them, you stay here and you get the rest that you need. And the rest of the total of 400 that were remaining went with David to chase after the Amalekites. Well, they succeeded in catching up with the Amalekites. They won a great victory. They returned all of the families, the women and children and the flocks and and all of the spoils. Everything was brought back to the city where 
they had lost it all. And they rejoined now with the remainder of those 200 men who had not gone with the rest of the army. And so that's the picture that we're seeing here. And it says in the latter part of verse 21, So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. They wanted nothing to do with those cowards that stayed behind. That was their understanding of what had taken place. That was their way of treating them, because they didn't go with the rest of the army who suffered the cost of battle and risked their lives, and those men just stayed behind and did nothing. That wasn't the attitude, though, of their leader, David. And that's important for us to look at tonight in closing our study together. Here's what David said in verse 23. My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us, uh, delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. It's exactly what Joshua had told the men of Manasseh who were now going back to their land. All those who did not go into the battle will share in the reward, the spoils of your victories. Verse 25 again finalized what we're reading here in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. So it was from that day forward, David made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So David did a wise thing, and he followed after the command of Joshua that we just read in Joshua chapter 22. And that is very important. David was a man of God, and he knew that that would be and was and is the will of God, that we don't deny the spoils to those who didn't go to the battle because they did other things. They may not have gone into the battle, but they stayed at home and they prayed. They might not have gone into the battle, but they stayed home and took care of business. They took care of the family. They took care of relatives. They took care of those in need. They might not have gone into the battle, but they were faithful to what God had called them to do. And that's important for us to remember. You know, we send out missionaries. They go out into the front lines, and we stay back, and we support them financially or through prayer or other means. But we're part of that victory that they win, and we receive the reward that God issues to both the ones who are on the front lines and also to the ones who remained behind to do God's will in both cases. Let us remember that. Let us not fail to recognize the fact that, that God uses all of us in His way, through His means, and for His glory. That having been said, we'll close our study tonight, and uh, we're going to probably finish the book of Joshua the next time we get together. There's two and a half chapters remaining, but it's important material for us to look at together. So, the Lord willing... We'll get there the next time and finish the book of Joshua. Continue to pray for the nation of Israel, my friends. Things are really starting to heat up more and more. Not only within the nation, but throughout the world, Jews are being persecuted once again. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. And 
every major city of the United States, all over the world, Jews are being persecuted, synagogues are being burned down, embassies are being burned down. There is much hatred in the world against the Jewish people. We need to be on their side. I believe that all of us who have been here at Safe Harbor Church understand that very important truth that God promised to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. And I want to be on God's side of his blessings, don't you? So let's continue for the people of Israel to pray on their behalf in these days ahead. They need prayer. They need to turn to God. And I believe that there is coming a day when many of them will. It's a long road ahead for them. There's many challenges in store for the people of God that God has chosen. They're still His people. We'll see that more and more as we continue in our studies, both on Sunday night and on Thursdays. So stick with us. God bless you till then. Grace and peace.